Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 8. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So the Jews thought that being identified with Abraham, bearing the markers of the law, you know, circumcision, the food laws, the Sabbath, that would set them free, they thought. Maybe as Americans we're like the Jews in that we imagine the markers of being American will set us free. Jesus introduces to the Jews the possibility that they are enslaved to sin because they imagine it's enough to be a Jew, to follow the law. And that's really what following the law meant. Could it be that identity of being an American is an enslaving to the law? This American worship of freedom has a long history. We mix our national freedom with our freedom in Christ. And this began about 312 AD with the Constantinian church in which the freedom which Constantine offered, it was a real freedom. Freedom from persecution, you know, a religious freedom. But it came at a steep price. The Constantinian freedom and peace is not achieved through the cross, but through the sword. Freedom and peace will be achieved by Constantine, by our own nation state, through war, death, and violence. And with Constantine then, Caesars, kings, princes, soldiers, in spite of their killing, were permitted into the church under the legal provisions of just war. It was an exception to the rule, but it would result in a huge theological shift. And we live in the wake of that theological shift. You know, the church continued to forbid priests to be soldiers, and penance was required even of those princes or soldiers who participated in war. Shedding blood continued to disqualify a potential priest for ordination. But nonetheless, with Augustine's Neoplatonic notion that one could both kill their enemy and love their enemy, you kill their body, you save their soul, allowing for just war and also for the use of the sword against heretics. The nature of 
Christian vocabulary became very equivocal. You know, what does love mean? This vocabulary floated around the hidden counsels of God. Well, really, only God knows. And God in the abstract and not in Jesus became the center. That's my point here. That God in, you know, abstracted maybe through the law determines what is good. So that his will is the good. And this turns out to be quite arbitrary. The Bible writer says, oh man, who are you to question God? And so if God wills it, by definition, it's good. But the problem is the will of God is removed from the person and work of Christ. That's the problem with the Jews. And that's the problem even in an abstract notion of God. The shift in ethics that is occurring in the Constantinian church that we still live with, it comes at a steep price. As this requires focus on God's essence as freedom. I used to drive down Highway 24. There's a, a church there called Freedom Baptist Church. It has a picture of the American flag and the, the cross in the midst of the American flag. I'm not quite sure if they've got their freedoms straight. Rather than focus on Christ, rather than the presuming of the love of God as primary, there's a shift in ethics which implicitly requires focus on an abstract notion of the will of God. But Jesus in John says that he has come to do the will of the Father. You want to know the will of God? Look at Jesus. For I have come down from heaven, he says in chapter 6, verse 38 to 40, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all of that he has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise them up at the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. What is the will of God? Well, we know the will of God in Jesus. Jesus says in the passage we read, I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your Father. What is Jesus saying? He said, well, actually, there's two fathers at work here. The Jews, in making the law primary, traded the power of God for the power of the devil. That's what Jesus tells them. The Romans seem to have done the same thing. It may seem to be a kind of unconscious necessity, but the point, as outlined by Augustine, is to make it clear that God acts, he says, quote, beyond any external necessity whatsoever. The necessity of Christ is set aside. Augustine begins with freedom. That's the wrong place to begin. You begin with Jesus. And God, he says, is free to love and forgive and save. But he misses that apart from Christ, this is just an arbitrary power. Historian Ron Dart depicts it this way. He says that Augustine took a position at times quite at odds with the Alexandrian Christianity of Clement and Origen. That is, the early church Christianity. It is in Augustine that notions such as election... Arbitrary choosing, double predestination. He chooses some to go to hell, he chooses some to go to heaven. 
God's sovereignty. This will become the focus. Not the lordship of Christ, but the sovereignty of the Father. Just war and God's willing and choosing reach a place and pitch that has much in common with the God of biblical Judaism. In Augustine, the return we see is to a willing, choosing, sovereign God, not bounded by goodness or justice. Such a God could and would use freedom to elect whom he willed for salvation, but also whom he willed for damnation. It's arbitrary. This is not a God, he says, that we can trust because you don't know what he's going to do. And so the focus on sovereignty, apart from focus on Christ, it's going to continue in the medieval centuries in voluntarism, which will be actually definitive of the Protestant Reformation. Voluntarism places God's will prior to his goodness, prior to his love as shown in Christ. It is an effort to protect God's freedom and it is particularly concerned to say that God is completely free. He's unconstrained. And God's own nature is thought to be at stake. So there's a primary emphasis on God's sovereign will as the primary attribute of God. I think what we know of God is through Christ. His will in this understanding is absolute. It's even Beyond good and evil. And if this doesn't ring with you in years a little bit, think of the famous atheist Friedrich Nietzsche who writes the book Beyond Good and Evil. Oh, he got that from a theological understanding. It's not good or evil which constrain God, but that which is it's an arbitrary decree. You don't know what it is. And so God's will becomes a kind of singular absolute. Nothing constrains God so that he can forgive or condemn as he pleases. And to try to say why he does something or anything is to endanger his freedom. If there's a reason that he does something, isn't that constraining him? And so you just have pure, unadulterated will. This is Calvinism, this is the Baptist theology, but this is Augustinian theology. God is God, law is law, power is power, will is will. And to suggest that any finite category such as goodness, love, or even evil might impinge upon that absolute freedom of will, people thought, oh, you're degrading God's sovereignty. Now John Calvin takes this a step further. Maybe before people would have hesitated, but he suggests that all events, even evil, takes place by God's sovereign appointment. If it happens, God willed it. There's no difference between God's permission or God's purposes or what God allows or what he commands. And so Calvin turns to Romans chapter 9. And he's misreading Romans 9 and using the example of Jacob and Esau. He says that if God wills it, that's it, and everything that happens is God's will. Quoting John Calvin. You see how it refers both to the mere pleasure of God, and that's the key here. If God pleases that it happens, it happens. Therefore, if we cannot assign any reason for his bestowing mercy on people, but just that it so pleases him, 
Neither can we have any reason for his reprobating or damning others, but his will. When God is said to visit in mercy or harden whom he will, men are reminded that they are not to seek any cause beyond his will. What's his will? Whatever happens. What does Jesus say is the will? He says, I do my Father's will and I reveal my Father's will. But Calvin makes it clear God's mercy and his condemnation are purely gratuitous. He says the covenant was gratuitous at first and such it ever remains. Calvin actually brings this up. You might think that David bases God's favor according, he says, to the cleanness of my hands. But Calvin points out that God's unfathomable pleasure precedes this favor. Here's the conclusion. The devil and the whole train of the ungodly are in all directions held in by the hand of God as with a bridle, so that they can neither conceive any mischief nor plan what they have conceived, nor how they may have planned, move a single finger to perpetrate unless in so far as God permits. What's he saying? God causes evil. Nay, unless in so far as he commands that they are not only bound by his fetters, but are even forced to do him service. Even if you don't want to do evil, God makes you. And so in turning to the notion that will is definitive, Calvin has made the mistake of the Jews following the devil. That's what Jesus says. The evil of the devil and the evil of wicked men cannot be permitted to somehow exist apart from the volition of God in this understanding. God might as well be the devil in this understanding. They're the same thing. Therefore, Jesus says, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. In 844, he says, you are of your father, the devil. Jesus leaves no room for doubt in case they missed who their father might be. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. Notice that we can link violence and murder and killing with the devil. That's always the sign. He does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. As some translations say, lying is his native tongue. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Every act of terror, every rape and murder, every genocide or infanticide, every cancer and heart attack, every famine and plague in this understanding are all in the service of God's ultimate purpose, that you would fear God and glorify his name. And so the focus on pure freedom and will, I believe, is a turn from God. It's a turn from the person of God, defined by love and Christ, to a focus on impersonal power. You know, personhood does not really figure into the discussion of freedom or even into the normal constraints of personhood. These are set aside. Think a minute. To say that one's choices are unconstrained, that would be total freedom, right? No constraints. 
unconstrained by circumstance, unconstrained by time or place. Can you imagine what that would insist? You know, in a human, that's just contradictory. Someone who's constrained by nothing, they're dead, right? Well, that's the ultimate constraint. But the same thing holds true for God. To say that nothing constrains his will would mean that his personhood is sublimated. It's overridden by his arbitrary choices. This is not a description of a person. It is a description of a pure, arbitrary, gratuitous power, even in the words of Calvin. And so I would suggest that the Constantinian shift, as the medieval theologians will begin to say, the church fell. Now, I don't know if the church falls, but certainly the Constantinian church fell. The turn from love to freedom as definitive of the divine essence, it's simply a return to the law. To imagine that there is life in the law is synonymous with the reduction of God to pure power. In this system, one does not speak of relationship, covenant, love, prior to the law. One begins with the law itself, with reason itself, with power itself. The law is the law. And this primary focus on the law is definitive of the sin which the writers of the New Testament are putting to rest. This is the whole point of New Testament Christianity. Paul explains that the law, the law of sin and death, is the power that has been unleashed on the world and which is being defeated in Christ. Galatians 2, 19 to 20. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Romans 1, 8, 1 to 2. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's your choice. You can have life in Christ, or you can have the law of sin and death. There is no in-between. Paul says, he explains, it's not the Mosaic law per se that was the problem, but we can follow what was done with the Mosaic law to perceive the problem. That's what he says, the law is a tutor. The law was grounded in a promise, the promise given to Abraham that's fulfilled in Christ. But the Jewish inclination, the human inclination, is to forget love, is to forget the covenant, is to forget that the marker of the law, you know, they imagine that's the main thing, rather than to focus on Christ. John explains that the law was not an end in and of itself. The law is not grace. The law is not truth. John 1, 16 to 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You don't have grace and truth through the law. That's only through Christ. Jesus corrected, reinterpreted, completed, suspended the law. He is the final and full revelation of the loving truth of who God is. God's essence is not pure will. His essence is selfless love. And we know that through Christ. God's primary attribute is not freedom. God is first of all good. He's loving. We know who God is through Christ 
And to presume otherwise is to return once again to the law. All the powers of the present age have been subdued and defeated, not by the law, which is impotent to set us free, that's the New Testament, but by a gift through Christ that has canceled the power against us, which is the law. The sovereignty of man and the will of humans are playing the decisive role in the turn from love to freedom. That's really what's happening, right? We turn to the sovereignty of God as we turn to the human sovereign, Constantine, or the human sovereign embodied in human leaders. God's sovereign purposes are thought to reign supreme in Constantine, in sovereign America, so that all the benefits of law and freedom seem to be accruing through history by a different means than the love of Christ. And as is always the case with the law, you know, some people are advantaged by that. God willed it. He willed that I be the emperor, or that I be ruler, or that I be powerful, that I be on the top, that I be a Roman, that I'm an American. Some are chosen. Sorry, some are not. In Western history, the devolving focus on pure will makes it obvious that one can take hold of this force. You can wield it. You know, this is Friedrich Nietzsche. If you're uberman enough, you can will to power. That's the name of his book that Hitler reads and says, Ah, yes, I want to grab the will to power. To throw off all constraints, except as they accrue to my benefit. This describes the modern turn to freedom. I believe we worship freedom, and in doing so, we've given up the worship of Christ very often. Throwing off the constraints of tradition and religion, this is the I am, the cogito. I am that I am, that's actually the name of God, but it's also what Rene Descartes calls his inner self. He founds the absolute law of reason of the individual. Modern individualism, modern freedom is built upon the lie that my will or my thought that this is establishing who I am. I establish myself through the power of will. This thing that thinks, even in the human person, is as mysterious and unapproachable as the God who wills arbitrarily. This autonomous, isolated, immortal individual is dependent upon no contingency. There is only the free movement of the will, as neither body nor thought impinge upon this mysterious automaton that thinks. The problem is, and this is actually Immanuel Kant, you don't really care about that, but this is his critique, that this thinking thing, this absolute individual, is as removed from thought as the counsel of the sovereign God is from history, from Christ, and from love. That's not who we are, that thinking thing. The curse of this power is that it operates beyond reach, beyond reality, beyond love. This thinking thing is constrained by nothing, and this death and nothingness is its curse. That is the curse of the law that Christ suffers. The pursuit of freedom apart from Christ enslaves to the law. This is what Jesus says at the end of their conversation. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, 
If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So we can cry with Paul, who will deliver me from this law of death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we've been delivered. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.